Hey, Ventfolio Voice family. In this episode, sponsored by DECRA, I'm joined by Dr. Casey Blessing to talk about atopic dermatitis. Now, I would not call myself a rookie when it comes to treating atopic dermatitis, but I started learning right from the get-go in this talk. So even if you feel pretty confident in your skin treatment ability, this episode is full of clinical pearls and helpful treatment tips. So maybe it's me who's behind the times, but did you know that the nomenclature surrounding atopic dermatitis has changed? That's right, even the name has changed. We cover the current nomenclature as well as important topics like dietary support for atopic dermatitis and how cats differ in their diagnostic and treatment plans compared to dogs. Dr. Blessing was great, so let me go ahead and tell you about her and we'll jump in. Dr. Casey Blessing completed her bachelor's degree in biochemistry at Arizona State University, and in 2011, she graduated from Tufts University's Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Blessing then completed a one-year small animal rotating internship at the VCA West Los Angeles. Upon finishing her internship, she accepted an American College of Veterinary Dermatology residency position with the Animal Dermatology Clinic in San Diego in July of 2012. Dr. Blessing achieved diplomate status with the ACVD in November of 2015. All right, you ready to start learning? Let's jump in. Okay, so for this episode, we're gonna talk about allergy testing, which I'm really excited about because let me tell you, Dr. Blessing, I have so many questions. Happy to answer, I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful, well, let's go ahead, let's just dive right in. We talk about allergy testing as a staple for managing atopic dermatitis, but there's different types of allergy testing, and I always wonder about this, like the pros, the cons, the different applications for different types of allergy testing. Can you talk about that in a little more detail? Yeah, sure. So allergy testing, you're right, is a staple for atopic dermatitis. Once you feel fairly confident that you have atopy, there's kind of two main ways to test. So we can test via the blood and via the skin. And then there's kind of the gold standard of doing both the blood and the skin to combine those results to basically help you pick what you want to put in your immunotherapy. So both are testing for IgE. You know, with the serum, obviously there's a handful of advantages. There's just a simple venipuncture, no sedation usually needed unless the cat or dog is so aggressive, you can't do a blood draw without sedation. And there's not as much drug interference. Unfortunately, you know, it only tests the blood, not the skin. There's kind of a lower number of allergens that are usually tested for. And then the allergens that are being tested for are usually fixed by whatever company is doing the blood allergy testing. There's a high sensitivity, but a lower specificity. So you can have possible fewer positives. When it comes to the skin test, at least the skin test that we do in San Diego tests for 82 things. You're looking at the wheel diameter, the height, the turgidity, the erythema of these when you're, you know, doing the test. Obviously, some advantages are that you test, you know, a lot more than what a lot of blood test offers. You can kind of pick the allergens that you want depending on what area you're in. And then it does test the skin, which is the organ at play. You know, handful disadvantages, usually you have to be at a referral practice with dermatologists that have been trained how to interpret how to do it. There is the drug withdrawal time, so topical steroids, oral steroids, even some diets can interfere with it you know, and then you have to make sure the owner's willing to sedate the dog or cat and then also okay with clipping a side of their chest. So they'll have some hair loss. So for show dogs and things like that, that can be an issue. And then if the skin is too diseased or has too much infection, you aren't really able to skin test in those patients. 
all in all, I think, you know, both of them are really great tests. Ideally, we love to do both with cats for skin tests that used to be a little harder to interpret. And it still is. They kind of have very fast reactions that fade and they can be more subtle. And so we have now learned that if you inject IV fluorescein and use a UV light, we're able to see those reactions easier. And so that's been really helpful for skin testing cats. Okay. Well, I've already learned a lot and we're like two minutes in. So this is great. Awesome. (laughs) So this really isn't like there's two different tests and there's, you know, this one's better than that one or anything like this. They both have advantages and disadvantages. And it's really kind of an individual patient decision as far as one or the other or both. Most dermatologists or I feel would love to do both. If I had to choose between the two, I usually prefer the skin test just because it's usually twice as much information. And then you're testing the organ that's actually causing the problem, but every case is individual. And so there are certain cases that will definitely pick skin test over blood test and vice versa. Got it. Got it. Okay. So once we get our allergy testing back, then we have the opportunity to create effective immunotherapy for our patients. And I got the chance to dive into this recently with one of my patients, kind of my first foray into it. And I'm happy to report it's working well, but I'll be honest, I really don't know that much about it. So can we go into immunotherapy and how it's administered and what kind of expectations we should have when we're managing atopic patients with immunotherapy? Yeah, absolutely. So once you get your allergy test results back, whether it's skin, blood, or a combination, we usually want to take into fact like, hey, is it seasonal, non-seasonal? Are they traveling? Where are they flaring up the most? And then once you get all kind of that information, depending if you're using injectable or oral, you can pick anywhere, usually around 12 antigens to put in it. Um, Sometimes you can go up as high as 15. There's other places that can give you a little bit more. But when it comes to kind of the two main staples, it's either injectable or oral or sublingual. So the injectable Typically, again, it all kind of varies on where you're getting your antigens and what kind they are, but at least kind of the more standard or what we we use in San Diego is for the injectable, it starts every other day for three weeks and then every kind of seven to 14 days thereafter. And we teach owners how to do it at home for patients that aren't amenable to having that done in the house. They can come in for it. There's also the ability to do what's called rush immunotherapy, where a patient comes in for the day and we're able to administer all three weeks of those injections in one day. So then the owners are able to leave with the patient only needing the injections every 14 days. That obviously varies because some dogs will get and cats will get itchy before injection or after injection. So there's a lot of modification that can happen. With the oral or sublingual drops, typically it's one pump once a day for the first week and then one pump twice a day thereafter. So we usually say that immunotherapy takes anywhere from four months to a year and a half to kick in. So it's not a super instant fix, but when it works, it's definitely the safest and most cost-effective way to control most patients. And we typically give about a 60% response rate where roughly speaking of that 60% success rate, a third of them only need allergy shots or drops and they're good to go. The other two thirds still might need help from Atopica, Apoquil, Cytopoint, but hopefully in smaller amounts and lower doses than if they weren't on it. So I think one of the biggest things that we see in our practice if, or actually I would say patients coming to us that have tried immunotherapy, they'll do it for four months for the induction and then they stop and never follow up with it. 
And so, you know, people have invested and spent all this money in allergy testing and starting in allergy shots or drops. And what we really want to stress is that I usually say, hey, we have to give this a year and a half. And then after a year and a half, if we're not seeing any response, we can talk about reformulation, second vials, things like that. But really wanting to make sure the owners realize it's not going to be an instant fix. So definitely hang in there for that whole year and a half. There's a newer kind of application coming out, which is still in the works, but it's a transdermal immunotherapy. And I think we're going to see a little bit more of that in the future, which will be really cool. So um, definitely great for cats that don't like oral medications and owners that don't want to give injections that there's going to be a transdermal, hopefully a transdermal application coming soon. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing, especially like you said, in cats and animals who won't tolerate injections or or oral therapy. What a great option. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so this isn't like a silver bullet where, you know, if we can just get them on immunotherapy, then we're going to fix all their problems. There is a percentage that may not respond or a percentage that may respond but still need help from these other medications. And, you know, I'll talk from my recent experience here of of this little guy. He actually responded very quickly. Like it, it has not been a year and a half and still needs help from allergy medications, but like we were having to give them at off-label high doses to keep him comfortable, and now they're at normal doses. Yeah, which is so nice. And we even have some patients that during certain times of year, like the immunotherapy is working well for them for eight or nine months, but during their high peak season, they might need a little extra help from Cytopoint or Apoquil during those months. But where prior it was 24-7, you know, all year round. And so it's really nice to be able to help eliminate, you know, immunosuppressive drugs if you're able to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about diet a little bit, because this is a topic that I find really interesting. And I understand that there are diets formulated with atopic pets in mind. So when I think of that, I think of hydrolyzed or novel protein diets, but are there other options besides those? Yeah, for sure. And when I think of hydrolyzed or hypoallergenic diets, that's more for when you're trying to diagnose or rule out a food allergy. So there's some great foods that have been made specifically for pets that actually have just atopy or environmental triggers. And so there's kind of three big ones. There's Purina makes one called DRM, which is a kind of trout-based diet. There's some rice and oat in it as well. And then Royal Canin makes one called Skin Support, which is fish-based, does have rice in it. There's a little chicken fat. So some of our most sensitive chicken allergic patients can still react to chicken fat. But hopefully in these cases, we've ruled out food allergy or have the diet, you know, know what triggers them. And we're just addressing or using these diets for the atopic part or environmental allergy component. And then Hills now makes Derm Complete, which is an egg-based one with rice. And, you know, they have the bioactives and phytonutrients to help normalize the immune response in that diet. So all these diets are kind of triggered at helping the skin barrier and supporting the skin for patients with atopy. Okay. So beyond just the the novel protein and the hydrolyzed, I want to clarify something with you real quick because you've talked about addressing just the atopy slash environmental component. Can you expand on that a little bit? Are you lumping those together like environmental allergy and atopic dermatitis? Yeah, great question. So there's all this like nomenclature that's come out and things that have changed. Like now feline atopy is supposed to be like feline atopic syndrome or feline atopic like syndrome. And, you know, there's also like food induced atopic dermatitis. It's more kind of the nomenclature is changed. So for what most people think of atopy or atopic dermatitis, we usually think of it being pollen and environmental. There is now 
kind of a shift in the nomenclature of, or kind of the naming of it. But for the purpose of the rest of the podcast, we can just assume when we say, you know, atopy or atopic dermatitis, it's pollen environmental, not food induced or flea induced, things like that. Got it. I feel like that's going to help me so much explaining that to clients. Cause I'm like, then there's contact and environmental and then there's atopic dermatitis, but those kind of go together. Yeah, that's kind of um, can get a little fuzzy. So I usually try to use um, environmental or pollen allergies when I'm speaking with my clients about it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That will change the way I explain that. Yeah, versus food or flea. You know, I kind of break it down into those three three categories, flea allergy, food allergy, environmental or pollen allergies. Okay. Okay. That makes it really simple. I've kind of always divided it up into four and said like fleas, food, contact, or atopic dermatitis. Yeah. You know, contact is like so rare. Um, you know, I think even in the 10 plus years I've been doing this, I've had like three or four contact allergies. So it definitely is out there and can happen, but they usually have a different presentation. Um, and it's not nearly as common as our big three flea, depending on where you live, environment and food. Wow. Yeah. That's going to make that conversation a lot more simple. <laughs> Good. So topical therapy, it's funny, we were just talking about contact and I'm thinking like the armpits and the inguinal folds and stuff and how a lot of times getting topical therapy on those will help. Can you talk about topical therapy with atopic dermatitis? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge one. Topical therapy is so important. So typically I would say that I have most of my allergic patients, if they can, bathing weekly. You know, sometimes we'll even bathe more frequently if if we are able to. So bathing weekly has like so many beneficial effects, especially if you're using the right topical. So we know that dogs with allergies, the barrier of their skin is defective. And so they're more prone to breaking with infections obviously incredibly itchy. Most of them are. And so they're licking, biting, chewing, scratching, rubbing, which can also induce infection. So the bathing can really help to support the skin, restore those ceramides, help prevent bacterial infections, yeast infections. And then some dogs even just wiping, like bathing and getting those pollen and environmental allergens off of them can make a huge difference, which can happen with water therapy, but bathing. So besides bathing, there's been a lot of new products that have come out that are kind of spot-ons or leave-ons. So Decra has actually launched this awesome product called Vet, and it comes in a spot-on formula as well as, as well as a mousse formula. And they even have a collar. And all three of those contain some sort of combination of kind of sphingolipids or hyaluronic acid and all kind of targeting that skin barrier. So it helps maintain that epidermal barrier, helps support like the normal inflammatory response response, can maintain the integrity of the healthy skin by hydrating. Um, so these really cool kind of spot-ons and leave-ons that if owners aren't able to bathe, um, there's a lot of great options out there. And so with this Atopi Vet, the spot-on is kind of a concentrated drop that you can drop on. The mousse is very similar to the other kind of foams and mousses that we've seen that kind of blend into the skin and get absorbed very quickly. And then there's this great collar that can be worn that actually spreads biosphene, which is the type of kind of sphingolipid to help support that epidermal barrier. I'm very impressed at how, I can't even say it once, sphingolipids just rolled off your tongue there. <laughs> yes, uh, that's drilled in you as a resident and also for board. So yes, and it's something we commonly deal with, especially with all the new topicals that are out. 
And we touched on this a little bit earlier with the role of medications in managing these patients, but can we talk about the medications that are out there and, you know, kind of how we choose them and what tends to work in these patients? Yeah, perfect. And this obviously could be multiple hours discussing all of these things, but I kind of think of like four big ones. Well, I should say foreign dogs. So steroids, which obviously ideally we wouldn't use long-term can have a lot of negative side effects, but they work really, really well. Then there's Apoquil, Cytopoint, Atopica. And then, you know, in a very small percentage of patients, like antihistamines can work, but typically I will say by the time they're coming to us, they've usually tried Benadryl or Zyrtec or even Temeril P and haven't had much success. I will say from an antihistamine standpoint, I have much better success with Zyrtec than I have with Benadryl or Claritin, those sorts of things. And there's even studies to support that Zyrtec has a better control over histamine release. And then at least in San Diego, like flea control is huge. So all of our allergic patients are on flea control, well, should be on flea control 24 seven, because we know that fleas can cause atopic flares and, you know, the threshold with getting bit by a flea can ramp up all the other, you know, itch that's associated with the allergies. When it comes to Cytopoint and Atopica, Apoquil, I think that's like kind of a case-by-case basis. Like Apoquil, they're not recommended to use in dogs less than a year of age. Cytopoint is fabulous for itch, but it really only focuses on itch. So it's one of my favorite drugs to use. It's not immunosuppressive. You don't really have to worry about blood work monitoring. But for a dog or cat, especially with dog that's constantly breaking with skin infections and ear infections, you know, Apoquil and Cytopoint don't tend to help as much with ear disease, but can obviously help significantly with itch. And then Atopica takes two to four weeks to kick in, but we definitely know the long-term side effects of that. And most dogs, if you can get them over those GI side effects and cats in the first few weeks can really handle Atopica very well. The nice thing about Atopica is you may be able to taper it, So Apoquil is in and out of the body so fast that usually it's needed daily and in certain patients, you know, twice daily. And that's, you know, you start twice daily for two weeks and then once daily thereafter. Where Atopica, we usually start daily for 30 days and then you can taper to the lowest effective dose, which may be daily or two days on, one day off or every other day or even certain times of year, they might be controlled on twice weekly, but then other times of the year, you have to go back to daily. So those kind of are the big four ones at least that I think of in dogs to use steroids, apical, cytopoint, and atopica. And then flea control is a hundred percent needs to be on it 24 seven here in San Diego. Yes. Here in Florida as well. And that can be a tough conversation to have sometimes like tougher than I feel like it should be sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Cause I think owners think that you're calling them dirty and that they're, you know, their house is infested and it, people can actually get unfortunately insulted by it. But people pick these beautiful areas to live in that have ideal climates for fleas. And I think probably all of us as veterinarians are like one of the hardest parts is convincing an owner with an indoor cat that their cat's being exposed to fleas when they've never seen it. The look on people's faces sometimes is like, I promise, like it's happening and I don't know how else to explain it to you, but it definitely happens. Yeah. These little buggers are everywhere. And right. sometimes I'll tell people, I'm like, look, it might just be like one or two and you're you're never going to see that. And they're not going to, you know, show signs of a flea infestation if they're just getting one or two fleas. But that can sometimes be enough to really set them off. And I feel like sometimes that disarms them a little bit of like, I'm not saying your house is infested with right. fleas. I'm <laughs> saying it doesn't take much. Right. And then most flea control products out there these days kill fleas before they lay eggs, but they can still be biting the patient anywhere from 12 to 24 hours before they're 
dead, but you know, a lot of the newer flea products out have a faster speed of kill, which is so nice. Yes, absolutely. That's such a good point. I always forget about that part. Yeah, it can be hard because they're like, I'm on flea control and I'm still seeing fleas. And I'm like, yes, but it could be that there's possums in your backyard or stray cats or, you know, all sorts of things that are contributing to the environment. Oh, yes. Sometimes we have to get really creative with the flea control. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about cats for a minute. When I think of cats with atopic dermatitis, I get like a little feeling of nervousness because I'm like, (laughs) oh, my gosh, what would I do with a cat with atopic dermatitis? Because they're so different from dogs. It's a completely different presentation that I wasn't even recognizing this as like a feline presentation of atopic dermatitis. Yeah. I mean, cats are, you know, we always joke, cats never read textbooks, right? And so they can be a little intimidating and really hard to see. And sometimes owners never, ever see their cats actually over grooming. So there's kind of four main presentations of paritic cats. So the one that maybe we more commonly see is that self-induced symmetrical usually non-inflammatory alopecia. And then there's also that miliary dermatitis that you can see, which we definitely think of as more flea related, but we can see it with atopy as well. And then the big one is that eosinophilic granuloma complex where you can, that can be a presentation of allergies and pruritus. So your eosinophilic granulomas, your eosinophilic plaque, your rodent ulcers, that those big three complex can be a presentation for how pruritic cats can present. And then you can get also this really kind of erosive and crusting dermatosis of the face and neck, which can be pretty striking and alarming. And there was a study looking out there that when a cat's face is affected, they're more likely to be food allergic, not always, but if you have a cat that's presenting with her like very erosive, incredibly pruritic face involvement, you definitely should do a, a diet trial to rule out food allergy. I feel like if I had a cat that had an erosive, crusty, <laughs> uncomfortable face, I would be trying anything and everything to try to get that kitty feeling better. Yeah. And what some of these food allergic cats can actually look like they have pemphigus because of how wow. bad it is. And they're so pruritic that they just do so much damage to their face. Yeah, it can be pretty impressive. And, you know, in all fairness, thinking about it, I, I say, yeah, I'd want to do anything and everything, but I actually don't know that my my instincts would go straight to food. So that's good to know that if we see those, those patients to really start on that food trial early. Yeah. And that, the main thing is if I think the history is really important on that, because if it's paritis first, where they're like going crazy at their face versus lesions first, that might trigger you into two different things. So lesions first you would probably be more worried about pemphigus like or autoimmune conditions or even, you know, fungal, those sorts of things, especially with how gnarly they can look. If it's paritis first of self-induced trauma, then you would definitely, I would have food be on my trigger or on my radar. I'm really appreciating all of this. I mean, I said I started learning stuff as soon as we started talking. I never really thought to dive into the history and the and the clinical presentation in that way as far as, you know, chicken or the egg. Yeah, I think that's a super important one. So that's one of the big ones we'll ask is, do lesions come first or does paritis come first? And unfortunately, a lot of times owners are like, I have no idea. And I'm like, fair enough, because they kind of happen hand in hand. But there are some cases that 100% lesions are first or 100% incredibly itchy, then the lesions come second. And so that can help kind of point you in the direction of allergy versus other, you know, diseases that can present like that. Interesting. Interesting. So when we talk about 
throwing the book at these patients, trying to get them comfortable. How does treatment for cats differ from treatment for dogs? If we're talking about for atopic dermatitis, so, you know, there's, of course, steroids can be used in both dogs and cats, but as we all try to avoid steroids long-term at high doses, just because of all the side effects, atopica or cyclosporine can also be used in both patients. There's a newer kind of, so atopica, the brand name labeled for you know, cats and dogs, the liquid for cats, the caplets for dogs. And then there's a newer one called Cyclovance, which is kind of like more of a sweeter vanilla tasting liquid that we've had, you know, when Atopica is on back order, Cyclovance was available. And we've had some patients tolerate one better than the other or oral application. And especially in cats with the liquid can be tolerated better one versus the other. I know that there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk about Apoquil in cats. Recently, Zoetis kind of looked at, first off, Apoquil has a much shorter half-life in cats compared to dogs. Because of that, we knew that cats needed to be at higher doses and usually at the twice daily dosing. However, what you know, Zoetis has just come out with, and they've actually presented an abstract, it's that they are not recommending we use Apoquil in cats just due to the systemic effects that can affect like EPO, the GM, CSF, and then other cytokines that can affect the bone marrow. So although we have those cases that kind of last ditch effort, you have a cat with like HCM and is incredibly paritic and you can't use steroids and can't tolerate atopica, I think a handful of us have reached to Apoquil kind of as a last resort. I would say for those patients that we have to use, like I let them know that they're really not recommending that we use Apoquil in cats anymore. And if you have to, and there's no other option, I'm usually checking labs way more often. So for dogs, I'll usually check blood and urine every six months. And with cats, if they have to be on it, which I'm, I try my hardest not to have cats on Apoquil, I'm recommending, you know, every two to three months, if they're able to afford blood work more frequently. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. That was definitely new information for me. So I'm glad that you put that out there. Yeah. I think, you know, Zoetis just wanted to come out and say like, Hey, we're not recommending that you use Apoquil in cats. But obviously, unfortunately, in veterinary medicine, we don't have the ability to do tests and studies on everything that we want. And so a lot of us as veterinarians have to use things off-label and change things and hope for the best. So, you know, it's always hard. We're always struggling to try to do the best we can with the medications that we have available to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And can I ask you, just my own curiosity, you mentioned feeling like, I think you said Apoquil doesn't work as well for ear cases. When you do have these chronic ear cases, is there a drug you feel like works well to help keep them under control? Yeah, this is a totally loaded topic, but ear disease is so hard. And, you know, there's that whole kind of four phases of ear disease that you have to get out of control. So the primary problem, the secondary problem, the perpetuating and predisposing factors. And until you get all four of those in line, ear disease can be super hard to manage. But there is no doubt that steroids work amazing in ears. And so typically I try to, if we're talking about that super stenotic, really infected ear, steroids can really help to kind of open that up, decrease the pain and inflammation and the stenosis, and then hopefully transitioning over to atopica to manage that patient more safely long-term, but searching for the underlying cause is huge. So getting the atopy under control, getting the food allergy under control, getting whatever underlying disease under control to then help 
all these other secondary predisposing perpetuating factors to get in line to help with those ear disease. But in our really bad ear cases, usually steroids are going to work the fastest and quickest, and then hopefully you transition over to atopica if needed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate you letting me throw you that curveball and I feel better about (laughs) the struggle of managing these chronic ear cases because man, they are a struggle. Oh my goodness. Especially, you know, if you have breeds that like cocker spaniels, that proliferative tissue is unreal. Yes, absolutely. Well, this has been great. I have learned so much just in our short conversation here. So any, any final thoughts you want to share with everyone? Oh gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, immunotherapy can be one of the best ways to manage our atopic dermatitis, but making sure to also, you know, manage topical therapy is really big, managing the secondary infections. And with all the antibiotic resistance that's out there, topical therapy has become huge and should be a staple of helping manage our atopic dermatitis. But yeah. And, the, you know, the, I think the other thing is, is these atopic cases are definitely chronic. And so coming up with a safe, effective long-term plan for owners can really be helpful. I love it. I love it. And topical therapy and all of this, I, I feel like I was listening to you. I was like, man, these are going to cause jumping off points into a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Dr. Blessing, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, guys, everybody feel confident about their Atopy treatment plans and recommendations? I know I took away a lot from this talk. Thank you so much to Decra for making this episode possible, and thank you to Dr. Blessing for joining me. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com, You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.